Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. And are you guys pumped up or what? That was some good music. So thank you for being here. Hope you're able to worship God along with us. Love it. I love it. I love it a lot. I brought my breakfast, which is, that's all I need, just a fork and an egg. I can do, I can work wonders. So you just wait and see. (laughs) It all's part of the plan. Did everybody get a handout? Did you find a piece of paper on your seat? Good. You can either, that's doodle paper. Um, If you would like it to be your notes, it can be your notes. If you want to follow along, hopefully you'll find it helpful. It's for you. So don't leave it here when you leave. I hope that you'll be able to take it home and use it because we got some, we got some, we got some big boy stuff to talk about today, Christina. Are you ready? You got your thinking cap on? All right. I do too. We are in uh, week number two of a sermon series entitled My Statement of Faith. And it's so important that it does become your faith. I can, you, I can direct you to the website all day long, and I can have you read our doctrinal statement all day long, but it's got to become you. It's got to become yours. It's got to become your faith, and you got to know why it's your faith. You got to be able to defend what you believe about your faith, because they're coming for you. I don't know if you know what's going on upstairs in Canada, but it isn't good. I don't know if you know what's going on in Australia with the Christian churches, but it isn't good. They are coming for you. So don't take your freedom for granted. Don't take your ability to to worship God publicly in this type of setting. Don't take that for granted where we can have the instruction of God's word going out freely just to say the name Jesus and to worship him full force. I mean, come on, let's go. We don't know how long that'll last, so we need to send it, full send, right? Isn't that what you kids say, full send? Was that like a couple years ago already? Okay, figures. I'm behind again. But my statement of faith, it's got to become yours. We're taking time this year to get what? Okay, Serena's here. Thank you, Serena. She's ready. We're taking time this year to get founded. And who knows what that word means? We break it into three phrases. We've been drilling it into your heads. It's on the back of Sebastian's shirt. Anybody shout it out to me? Back here. Austin. Austin, you have the floor. Tell me what founded means. All right, dig deep, build up, stand firm. Dig deep, build up, stand firm. Anybody ready to get a tattoo? I would just, I'll put that on my back, like the full print, like the the font and everything, just as big as that. We'll just have a full sleeve on my back. No, I don't know. That's probably not the terminology. (laughs) But I'm going to get founded this year. And so that starts with our faith and making it ours. Week one, we talked about creation. So important that you have a biblical foundation for how you got here and how this world got here. And the one thing that I really super wanted you to take away last week was that the what is on your side? The science, that's right. Everybody say it like you mean it. The science is on your side. That's right. The science is on your side. And by the way, I do have handouts for that. If you missed last week or maybe you just misplaced your handout from last week, I have tons. So come see me after the service and uh, I'd love to get you one. So you've got your new one and and you've already seen, you've already peeked at it and you know what's ahead today. We got to figure out who God is. We We might should have put this one first, but even before creation. So creation, the science is on your side and, and you can look up all the passages and the references on that. But what about God? What do we believe about God? Who is he? What is, what is he like really in his essence, in his, in his being? Who is he? If you don't know the answer to that, you're going to have a hard time justifying your faith when it comes to anything else, like he cares for you in time of trouble. You're going to have a hard time coming up with answers for why you believe you're on your way to heaven if you don't know who God is. You're going to have a hard time 
coming up with answers for what you believe about marriage and family if you don't know who God is, who is God to you? Well, we will take a little bit of time. I'll direct you to a website, decidedchurch.com. We have a statement up, right? It's not a perfect statement, but we have something up there. It's our mortal, it's our human attempt to, to, to put a handle on who God is, which is, which is impossible. But this is what we say. We believe in one awesome, perfect, eternal, and superior creator, God manifested in three equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I like Holy Ghost better. I don't know what happened to the ghost, but um, we say a Holy Spirit a lot anymore these days, but whatever, it's fine. You can use both Holy Spirits in the Bible, Holy Ghost is in the Bible, but it's all good. But I want to know who here has grown up in church, and maybe in Sunday school you had a teacher try to describe the Trinity to you, because we're talking about three equal persons here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I brought a couple of illustrations. Who's, who's seen the egg illustration before? Seen that? That's right. The egg has three parts, the shell, the, the egg white, and then the yolk, right? And God is three. He's outer, he's inner, and he's the center. And we have our egg here representing the Trinity. It can help. It's not perfect. It's not perfect because any one of these parts of the egg on its own is not the full egg. But when we're speaking of the Trinity, what we'll discover soon is that any parts of these on their own is fully God. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves. How about the fork? Now, I'm a pastor, so I had to have holy silverware. I searched high and low for forks with only three prongs, and we bought that set because I'm a reverend, you know? <laughs> but no, it, they, it's really hard. To, you can't, you know how hard it is to find forks with three prongs anymore? Most all of them have four. But I got a three-pronged fork because we're spiritual in my house, and I'm trying to bring up my children in the, in the knowledge of the Lord. So we got a Trinitarian fork, Okay. Three prongs, but who's seen the fork illustration? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one fork, three prongs, right? Any Sunday school teacher whip that out on you? Hopefully they didn't beat you over the head with it afterward because you weren't paying attention, clearly. Um, but we've got the fork illustration, right? Again, this one, fall, it breaks down on us logically because each one of these prongs on its own is not a fork. I can't run around with, run around with a prong saying, uh, um, the, the, look at my fork. This is a super cool fork. So, although some, some of this plastic silverware breaks down on us and all we're left with is a prong anyway. But my fork is a Trinitarian holy fork. Uh, one of my favorites growing up was the three states of water, right? You've got ice, you've got water in liquid form, and then you've got water vapor in a gas type of form. I don't think it technically qualifies as a gas, but you've got uh, solid, liquid, and gas, the three states of matter, and, and water pictures that for us. And the cool thing about that illustration is that uh, each one of those on their own is fully water. That's the, cool, uh, that's the cool part of that analogy. That one holds a little bit more weight, yet it holds a little more water, um, because ice cube on its own is water. The water vapor on its own is fully water. And then, of course, if you've got water in the pot and you haven't boiled it yet in the liquid form, that's water also. But the problem with that one, it breaks down again and trying to describe the Trinity because you can never have all three at once. So what are we going to do? How, did anybody grow up with maybe another illustration or symbol of the Trinity? Just shout it out. I want to hear what you've heard. Amanda back there, what did you hear growing up? Just quick, shout it out, one word. Yep, that counts. Anybody else get a, do a picture or a symbol of the Trinity? Did someone try to explain it in some way? Andrea. Okay, I like that. I like that. Pepperoni pizza. Brennis, you got a Trinity picture for us? An apple. Yeah, that one's a lot like the egg, right? But the apple, you got the skin, then you've got the fleshy part, which is, of course, Jesus, because it was God in the flesh, right? And then you've got the, the seed or the um, whatever, the middle, the core. Yeah, that's the word. And the Father must be the core, right? So that leaves the skin for the Holy Spirit. He always gets the short end of the stick. 
Not today, not in this place. Um, uh, Vastine in the back, what, what Trinity picture have you heard? Oh, that's good. That's good. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that actually in a little bit. There, you, got, you, got a little, you got a little tinge of, um, we'll, we'll fix it. Don't worry, Vestine. We'll, we'll get you educated. But um, okay, so here we go. We're going we're gonna to throw out a few definitions for you because we have to know what we're dealing with. None of these are perfect. Again, because our triune God is humanly a- incapable to grasp. And if, if you leave with anything today, because it's going to get a little heady, if you leave with anything today, know this. The fact that we cannot grasp who God is in fullness is a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. That's, that makes him God. If we could figure him out, then he wouldn't be God. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thought we can have. So as you're being founded, as you're building your foundation, as, as you're scripting out, if you will, your statement of faith, who God is to you is the most important one out of the gate. It shapes everything else about you. So what do we say about, how do we reconcile with the Trinity? Because Jim, you just said the thought we think about God is the most important, but you also said we'll never be able to figure out the Trinity. So which is it? And this is what I say, do your best. Trust God with the rest. When it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to the full Godhead, do your best, try to comprehend it fully, truly, try to, but the parts that you just cannot grasp, you have to trust because at the end of the day, if this book says it, that's all we need. There goes my egg. I'm gonna end up having you hold it, Sebastian, probably. But the Trinity, right? It's, it's, it's incomprehensible. But if it's laid out in the word of God, that means it's truth, whether I understand it or not. It's truth, whether I like it or not. God is a triune being as one. Okay, so definitions. We have one on here. One God who eternally existed as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully, yes and amen, and equally, yes and amen, God. That's from Mark Driscoll's book, Doctrine. Okay, what about Mark Cameron? He was, he's an old guy. He's long gone. He was dead a long time ago, but he put out a Bible doctrines book where he went through all of the ologies that you might hear about in seminary or something. He put it simple. I like him. He's on my wavelength. God's three and one. That's the Trinity in a nutshell. God is three and one. And then Tertullian, he's actually... Um, they call him the father of the Trinitarian doctrine. He's the one who first put it on paper and began to defend it and articulate it. And he said, God is one substance or essence and God is three persons. He didn't even try to tie them together. He didn't even try to make them fit. He just said, listen, God is one, God is three. Deal with it. That's what we see in the Bible. I like him. All right, so the history of the word I just told you, first used by Tertullian in the third century. And catch this, it's not... It's not something that's new. It's not a new doctrine. It's not something that we have to be like, ooh, what is this? Is this some new thing we have to learn about and defend? No, 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 no. Hear me. It's been around for, for the ages. It's been around since scripture. I mean, it's been, this doctrine has been around. All of the ancient theologians, philosophers, apologists echo the words of the apostles at the Council of Nicaea. The Nicene Creed. That phrase might sound foreign to you, but if you grew up in any type of liturgical church, that was the thing at the back of the hymnal that you stood up and, and recited together. You might, you might have heard it in song form. It's the doxology. The words of the doxology are taken right from the Nicene Creed. So you've heard it before. We can say it together if we want, but we don't have time. But look it up, the Nicene Creed. That's where it was first laid out by the apostles that espoused and defended that God is three in one, written around 300 years after Christ's birth. Okay, so where do we find this in the scripture and how can we justify this in our mind that God is one, yet God is three persons, and each one of those persons is by himself fully and completely God? Hard, it's hard. But let's start at the beginning. Let's start with God is one God. That's monotheism. And if anybody ever asks you, 
and ridicules your faith saying, well, you believe in three gods, that's messed up. Like you have, you have Jesus, you have the Father, you have the Holy Spirit, you believe in three gods. You can say, no, 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 I'm a monotheist, I believe in one God, and that is all over scripture. Let's take two of these verses on your handout. Let's do Deuteronomy 4.35. You can circle that one, and we'll also go to Isaiah 43.10. Circle that one. To you it was shown, up here on the screen, Deuteronomy 4.35, that you might know that the Lord is God. There is none other besides him. God is one. So what do we do with all the false gods and false religions out there? What do we do with Allah? What do we do with Buddha? What do we do with Confucius and Mother Earth? There's only one God. So those are false gods and whether they have a demonic spirit, a demonic authority with them or not, we'll know one day. But what we do know is there's only one true God, only one. And any lowercase G-O-D is false and fake and not real. What does Isaiah 43.10 say? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Wow, that couldn't be more clear that we serve one God. One God. We're monotheists. Okay, well then, what about the Trinity? What do we do with these separate persons, these separate roles of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Are they God? Did they, did they equal God when you put them all together? Is it like one plus one plus one equals Godhead? Or is it more like one times one times one equals one? That's more accurate. So the Father is God. You won't get a lot of pushback on this. I've never had somebody come up to me and say, Prove to me that the Father is truly God. You know, they, they usually don't stumble over that when most all religions and faith systems come into agreement that the Father, as laid out by Scripture, is God. But just in case you, you come across some nutcase, let's throw a verse up here. We'll do 1 Peter 1, 2, and I'm going to use this one because we'll come back to it later. According to the foreknowledge of who? God, the Father. So the Father is God. And you'll see that phrase all over scripture, God the Father, meaning that the Father is fully and completely, totally God. Now catch this, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but we're going to read the rest of the verse and the sanctification of the who? Spirit. For the obedience to who? Wow, so the whole Trinity is involved in our salvation? It's a Trinitarian salvation? Pretty cool. The Father is God. What about Jesus? And this is where you will get some tension. There are plenty of religions and faith systems that believe that Jesus is a lowercase G-O-D or maybe not God at all. Maybe just a good guy, a, a prophet, a really good teacher, an example, right? No, Jesus is fully God. How do we know that? It's all in the Bible. Let's begin with John 1, 1 through 3. This might be the most clear and you can compare this with Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Does it say that? The Word was a God? It says that in the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Did you know that? They changed this verse to say that Jesus, the, the Word was a God, lowercase g-o-d. So you can take him, you can, if a Jehovah's Witness ever shows up to your door, and tries to, tries to preach John 1, 1, that Jesus was a God, you get out your own Bible and show them that there's no, there's no article before God. No, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, no, there was not anything made that was made. And then it goes on in verse 14, which is not on the screen, and said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who was the word? Jesus. Jesus if you sub out the word word and put Jesus there, you'll see that Jesus is God. That's who the apostle John is referring to. Let's do John 8, 58. This one is cool because it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's two proofs in one that Jesus is God. 
And you'll see that in your note, Jesus existed eternally, also stating deity by quoting the Old Testament. He says to the Jewish Pharisees and rulers, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. That's it. No, no qualifying statement. No, no parameters. Not, not before Abraham was, I, I am, I am created. Not before Abraham was, I, I stuck around or, or, or before Abraham was, I, I, I was, um, you know, just in the, in the shadows, in the background. No, before Abraham was, I am. He eternally existed. He eternally existed as God. He's been around since before time began. Jesus was not a created being. He is God. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, why would they stone him? Why would they try to kill him on the spot for saying those words? They knew it was deity. They knew he was claiming authority and fullness of who God is. The reaction is proof of that. Him quoting the Old Testament is proof of that. And then the title itself, I am, is proof that Jesus is God. Look back through scripture at all the times God appears and, and, and says to people, I am that I am. Jesus was claiming that title for himself and saying, listen, if you've seen the Father, you've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am God, the fullness of God. Okay? Make sense? Everybody tracking? Let's look at one more. We're going to have a little, I know, English, a little grammar lesson. Are you ready, Sebastian? Did you like grammar at all? Is all right? I loved it. I'm a, I'm a nut for some English and grammar. Titus 2.13. This one says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, how does this prove that Jesus is God when even Paul separates them? He's got God over here and Savior Jesus Christ. If they were the same person, why did he need to introduce them both separately? Look at the grammar. This is called, I think I put it on your handout, the Granville Sharp Rule. All right, you guys ready? Think you cap on, Christina? You're ready. I know you are. All right, so whenever you have two descriptor words in the Greek, two equal descriptor words connected by the Greek word chi, which is and, and they're both describing the same proper noun, which in this case is Jesus Christ, it means that they are both fully equal and fully describe the proper noun. So in other words, this is how you're supposed to read this verse in the original language. Waiting for our blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You tracking with me? It makes all the difference in the world how you read it. And if you don't see it in Greek, you'll miss it. It's not God over here and then Savior Jesus Christ. No, in the original language, if you study the grammar, it's God and Savior together, one, describing the person of Jesus Christ. Make sense? You made it? Did you make it? Everybody's still with me. You guys are good. That's grammar. That's, that's, that's some deep theological grammar. You just went to Greek class, all right? So the Holy Spirit, you know he's God too. By the way, like I said, for some reason, whatever it is, and I don't know what it is, I can't really fully grasp it, but the Holy Spirit always gets the short end of the stick. Now, why is that? He is fully God. And by the way, he is a he. I didn't even get to say this in the first service, but it's not, the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's, it's not a Gosh, we are so guilty of this. It's not a supernatural force. Like, God, we need the Spirit in this room. We need you in this room. He's a per- it's a he. It's a, it's, a, it's a personal being. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not a, it's, it's not even an, an emotional experience. It's not a force. It's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's a he. Don't miss that. How do we know the Holy Spirit is God? 2 Corinthians 3, on, it's that, that's the little letter A on your handout. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Right out of the gate. The Lord, God, is the Spirit. 
and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, now think about this. Picture in your mind Moses coming down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments and his face is shining with God's glory because that's literally what he's talking about in this passage. But he's describing God as a spirit. So God is the spirit. Now it makes sense because, and we with all, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. So that means when we come in contact with the spirit, which is a person, we're coming in contact with the full glory of God. And we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit, just in case you didn't get it the first time. The Holy Spirit is God. What about Acts 5? We'll race through this one. Basically, what happens is Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of land. They give all the money to the church. And I'm just going to speak that into existence, somebody here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Does somebody want to sell some land and give us some money? I'm fine with that. It's, it's very Trinitarian, actually, as we see. But um, So they sell a piece of land. They tell the church, they tell the apostle Peter, we're going to give all the proceeds of this land back to the church. Well, when offering time came, they only gave a part. And Peter confronts them and he said, listen, this isn't a problem if you had said from the gate that you were going to give a part. The problem is you lied to the Holy Spirit because you said you were going to give all and you only gave a part. And then he follows it up again and says, why would you lie against God? So the first time he says it, he says, you lied against the Holy Spirit. Two verses later, he says, you lied to God, meaning God is the, whole, the same guy you lied to over there when you lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. What's the problems here? What, what are the, what are the uh, attacks against the Trinity? There's three of them. We'll go through them quickly. Polytheism or tritheism. Any faith system that worships more than one God is false. That's not monotheism. That's not our Godhead. Mormonism believes this in many gods, that Jesus has the opportunity to become God just like us. That he, some, that he somehow paved the way, that Jesus in, in, a, in a former life was just like you and I, Jason, and he, like, follow, he did all the right things to become, to become his own little God, and if we follow his path, we can become our own little gods. Messed up. False teaching. What, what's the problem with that? The problem is that Scripture already states that our God is what? Three? Is he three? Is he two? Is he 15? He's one. God is one. He is one God. One God. All right. Modalism, also known as unipersonalism, is the next one. And this one's a little trickier. I'm just going to warn you. This is one. Per- they believe that God is one person. Not just one God, but they take it a step further and say God is one person, meaning that in the Old Testament, he operates as the Father. In the Gospels, he operates as Jesus. In the church age, he operates as the Spirit. Or, letter B explains it this way, Father, Son, and Spirit are not three persons, but God plays one role at a time. Think of, a, think of like God holding up a mask saying, oh man, I'm going to deal with Jason right now as the Father, then I'm going to run over here and talk to Brandon, and I'm going to be Jesus. I'm holding up my Jesus mask, and then I'm going to work my way over here to the brags, and I'm going to be the Holy Spirit. I'm going to hold up my Holy Spirit mask. So it's one person just holding up different masks. And that's where we have to be really careful with that ideology that Vastine was spewing out back down. I'm just kidding. I <laughs> just get up. But these are the same people that, yeah, yeah I, can, I can be a, I can be a I'm, I'm a son to my father, and, I, and I'm a husband to my wife, and I'm a father to my kids. If we take that into the Trinity, it becomes modalism that God is one and just playing a certain different part with humanity at different times. What's the problem with that? Because it sounds like, yeah, I I can fit that into my mind that makes human sense. What's the problem with it? The problem is that scripture states numerous occurrences where all three are appearing at one time. Now, if it's just one dude, how can you do that? How can the whole, how can God as a person be playing three roles at one time? I took theater class. I took pantomime and dramatic V and everything. You can't be three people at once. 
So modalism, the reason why modalism or unipersonalism is dangerous is because <laughs> it's because we take the Trinity, which is a lofty idea, it's hard to grasp, and we've put it into human term, terminology that we can understand. And that's always where false doctrine creeps in. When we take things we cannot understand and we put them in human terms that we can understand, you out of line. That's where all false doctrine comes from. When you take something that is holy and wonderful and majestic and mysterious all at once, and we try to put it in our human terminology. United Pentecostal Church, they, they, they espouse this doctrine that it's Jesus, and he can play the role as the Father, he can play the role as the Holy Spirit, but it all is Jesus. Okay, what do you do with the baptism of Jesus then? We just read about it. All three are present. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we see Jesus come into the waters. John is baptizing Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove and the Father speaking down. God is three persons, three separate persons. Another example we see this is the creation of the world. We see Jesus at creation, which Colossians tells us about. So we know he's there. John 1 tells us that Jesus is there. And we have God the Father there, naturally. And then we have the Spirit there because it says, and the Spirit descended and hovered over the waters. So modalism is a false doctrine. It's heresy because it tries to present all three persons as really just one person, that God is, not, God is not just three in one, he's one and plays three parts. And then if they can't get you with polytheism, if they can't get you with modalism, then they'll just be like, okay, well then the three are not equal. The Father is God, but Jesus isn't. He was created later. And this is dangerous. Did you know, I read a survey this week that actually 78% of Christians believe that Jesus was the first created being. Folks, that's a problem. Jesus was not created. If he was created, then he cannot be God. Jesus is the fullness of God. And the very verse that they use to espouse this doctrine also proves them wrong. Look at this, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See right there, Jim, Jesus was created. He was the firstborn of all creation. You don't understand the word. Go back to grammar class. Firstborn in both Greek and Hebrew languages signifies much more than just being created. In fact, it has nothing to do with being created. Look on your handout. Firstborn means authority. It means preeminence. It means the one who holds inheritance and the blessing of the Father. You remember uh, the story of the prodigal son in the Gospels where the younger son said, I, I know we have an inheritance coming at some time, but go ahead and give me my portion now. Why did he say, give me my portion now? Because as a father, as a generation, as a patriarch of a family, you had a firstborn, which meant not just that he was the firstborn, but he carried the weight of the inheritance. He carried the family blessing. He carried the, the majority of, of the territory, the land, the resources, the money of the family. It speaks of authority. We see this repeated in the, in the life of Joseph. When Jacob came from the nation, he was in Cana and he moved to Egypt to be with his son, Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he brought his two sons to, to Jacob because he wanted his father's blessing on his, on his sons, Jacob's grandsons. And it shares a specific story of how he put Manasseh, specifically Joseph switched the order and put Manasseh on the right knee of Jacob. His father was, 
his eyesight was going. He thought, now Manasseh will get the, he'll get, he'll get the first blessing. He'll get the, the, the majority of the authority. He'll get the preeminence because he'll be the firstborn. Not that Manasseh was born first, but he'll hold the authority. And Jacob, all knowing, uh, Jacob switched his hands and did like this. He knew what Joseph was up to. <laughs> Apple doesn't far fall. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If you know anything about Jacob himself, he was quite the trickster. So when you think about the word firstborn, think authority, think preeminence, the one who holds the inheritance, the one who holds the blessing of the father. And now you look at it and it makes more sense. Back to Colossians 1.15. He is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the authority, the preeminent one over all creation. They are equal. They're equal in power. They're not equal in job. They're not equal in function. They're not equal in role, but they're equal. Both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in authority and power. They're all 100% God. Who comes against this? Jehovah's Witness, they, we already talked about that. Jesus is not God. And the problem, Scripture states that Jesus is fully God. If, I'm just going to uh, mention this quickly and keep going. Anybody remember The Shack? It was a book and a movie in 2007-ish. Remember that? It was spread like wildfire. But you have uh, Mac, he enters the shack, he encounters manifestations of three persons of the Trinity. God the Father becomes this uh, African-American woman that calls herself Papa. Jesus is a Middle Eastern carpenter. The Holy Spirit is an Asian woman named Sarayu. Messed up, okay? Don't take your Trinitarian doctrine from the movie The Shack, okay? There was a feeble attempt to try to explain the different parts of the Godhead. But if you're saying God's a woman now and, and, and the Holy Spirit's an Asian woman and, God's middle, and Jesus is a Middle Eastern carpenter, you've, you've blown it. Like, you have, you've already blown it. That, that would fall under this number three. The three are not equal. So why is it so hard to understand this, this concept of the Trinity? And again, I repeat, it's a good thing that it's hard to understand, folks. That means that God is God and we are not. So let's look at these. The word Trinity is never found in the Bible. That's a problem. They say that's a problem. Chapter and verse, you believe in a Trinitarian God? Okay, well, where is that word found in the Bible? It's not, you're right, it's not found. But do you believe God is omniscient? I do. I believe that God knows everything. Do you believe that God is omnipotent, meaning that he's all-powerful? I do. I don't know about you. Do you believe that God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things? I do. Do you believe that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere at once? I do. Guess what words you'll never find in the Bible? Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. They're just placeholders. They're theological, doctrinal terms that defines something that is very much in the Bible. Even C.S. Lewis said, use whatever word you want. I don't care. <laughs> he, even, he even recognized because we don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, the word Trinity, that's not, that's not where the holiness is found. The holiness is found in who God is, his being his Godhead, not in the word. C.S. Lewis says, use whatever word you want. Trinity seems like a pretty good one. So we've stuck with it for all these years. Letter B, because people think Trinity, why, why is the Trinity so hard to understand? Because people think the Trinity and monotheism cannot coexist. They say, Jim, is it one or is it three? I don't understand. If it's really God is one, then how can he be three persons? At the end of the day, I don't know. I don't know how that's possible, but it is. Think of it this way. Your handout says, number one, three who's, one what. God being the what. The who's, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one God. Not three gods in one God, three persons in one God. Co-equal, but separate in function. Look at the diagrams there at the bottom of your handout. We'll put it on the screen too. We've got them up here. If you just type in the word Trinity on Google image search, this will pop up. And this holds the basic Christian belief of what the Trinity means. The Father is not the Son, not the same job as. 
The Son is not the Holy Spirit, not the same role as. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, not the same function as. But they all do equal God, fully, completely, totally God. But they're separate in function. That's good for me that answers about 75% of everything I want to know, but I got a problem with this diagram. I don't know if you do, but it presents to me a problem and the fact that God is in another circle in the middle by himself. To me, that's a problem. So now we've got four. <laughs> I was already struggling with three, and now you're going to put a fourth one. So now you've got God is number four, and he maybe he's like overarching all of them. And then you've got three running around. Like somehow God is the sun, and you've got, different, you've got three different planets orbiting around God. Now we've got four. That's confusing to me. That doesn't make sense. I don't like it. So I made my own. <laughs> and you can, you, can, you can do away with it if you want. It just helps me understand a little bit better because we don't have a fourth being in the middle. It's Father, Son, Spirit, not equal in role or function, but equal as in they all are God, which is behind, which is, which is, which is surrounding and enveloping all of them. They're all each individually, separately, fully God, but together also the Godhead. And this way we eliminate this fourth circle of somehow, oh, there's another guy into the equation. Make sense? Maybe not. Okay, well, number three, what about this? Maybe think of it this way. And again, these are all finite attempts to help you understand the Trinity. Think of God, that being the Father. Think of God's word being manifested in the flesh as Jesus. And think of God's spirit. God, God's word, God's spirit. That puts some handles on it for me. What about Matthew 28, 19? This is a cool verse that shows how they are singular, but three. It says, go therefore and make disciples. This is the great commission. You should know this verse. Hopefully it's highlighted in your Bible. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How many has heard, heard that when we do baptisms or you've, You've heard that, right? We, we, we do this, we practice this phraseology when we baptize. Baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in death, raised to walk in newness of life, right? Well, if, there's, if we're baptizing people in three different names, then you would think name would be plural, echoing the fact that we're speaking about three different people. In my mind, it should read, baptizing them in the names, in the names of Father, Son, and Spirit. There's three, right? Plural. But the fact that the Holy Spirit, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew to make the word name singular, referring to one God manifested in three persons. Isn't that cool? It's only one. It's baptize them in the name, the singular name, the one name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pretty cool. Hey, let her see. It does overload the mental circuits. And it should. Our God is both majestic and mysterious. He should not be contained. He should not be symbolized. He should not be imagined. The second commandment, number two, says, and we forget this, I think, a lot of times when we talk about the Trinity, when we talk about God in general. It says, do not form any graven image. And you and I think we get a free pass because none of us are running around carving gold images, putting them on a pedestal, bowing down in a temple-like structure. None of, us are, none of us have visible, physical images or idols of God, but we do it when we talk about God all the time. How many of you have seen so many pictures that depict God as an old man with a beard? How many of you have seen Jesus pictured as a shepherd in your grandma's house? And where, how many of you have seen pictures of the Holy Spirit as a dove? Yeah, we all have. I'm sorry, folks. God is not a dove. God is not a shepherd. God is not an old man. God is not even white or middle American or Eastern American or any specific skin color. God is God. And so any attempt to put him in human form, whether shepherd, dove, old man, it's all, it, it transgresses the second commandment. I feel like there's a, a line that we're crossing there when we put God in picture form. 
He says, don't make a visible image of an invisible God. The closest we can come is in Revelation when the apostle John, he goes under a trance, he goes under a vision and he's doing his best to describe what he sees in heaven. He's doing his best to put it into the Greek language and then it gets translated into English. So we've already lost some of the significance there. But read it in Revelation 1. If you want to write this down, you might want to write this down right here by number two, the second commandment. This is as close as we can come in Revelation chapter 1 when John is trying to describe what he sees as the person, the man, Jesus. Starting in verse verse 12. Write down Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 16. And just let your mind get carried away. It'll blow your mind as John tries his best to depict what Jesus looks like in his mind. It's amazing. But the fact that we shouldn't be making an invisible God visible should, should strike to our core this morning, that maybe we've been getting it a little wrong. Yes, did the Spirit take on the form of a dove? Yes. Did Jesus tell a parable one time where he was the great shepherd? Yes, but he wasn't a shepherd. And I don't know where we get the old man thing. I like Stephen Toller's beard, but we don't know that God ha- we don't know that God has a beard. It doesn't make Stephen extra holy. As much as he likes to believe he's a little closer to God because of that beard, we don't know that God has a beard. Where do we get this stuff? God is not a man. God is not, he does not take on physical form like, quite like we do, even though we're made in his image. So Isaiah 55 says that. It says, his ways are not to be understood. They're higher than ours. Forever and always, they will be higher than ours. And we'll understand when we're glorified one day in the presence of Jesus. But until then, we have to take him at his word. Why does it matter? Oh, by the way, I love letter E, the Trinity's complex nature. Listen, the fact that we can't understand it, that validates our faith in our Bible. Because even if we could come up with this, we would never put it out there. If Derek's on his back porch one day, on his back patio, by his green egg, and he's cooking up some steaks and he's just thinking to himself, yeah, I think I'm going to put out this. I got this whole like faith system in my mind that I'm imagining. And I think I'm going to put God out there, but he's not one. He's going to be three, but he's one, but he's three, but he's one. And I'm going to get everybody to buy into this stuff. <laughs> we couldn't, we, we would never, could never, would never put this out there. That should bolster your faith. Man did not come up with this. It's a God thing. C.S. Lewis describes it this way, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because he talks way above my head, and, and y'all, some of y'all might, might get him a little better because y'all are super smart. But for me, I'm just going to paraphrase, and he's like, listen, the reason why you can't understand the Trinity as humans is because humans are one-dimensional. We're one-dimensional beings. And what he means by that is he says, we're confined by absolutes, time, space, and matter. We're confined by those absolutes. We cannot escape time, space, and matter. Therefore, we're one-dimensional. But he said, when you add a second dimension on that, and when you add a third dimension on that, you've got to understand that God is three-dimensional. And so you're looking at him with the confines of time, space, and matter as a one-dimensional being, but, but God, is, God created time, space, and matter. He's outside of time, space, and matter. He is three-dimensional. And of course you can't understand. That's like trying to, it's like trying to build house plans just, just uh, drawing a blueprint. Like that's just, that's just one. You eventually you got to throw it in AutoCAD so you can see the whole thing, right? That's how we're trying to describe a Godhead, a manifestation, a Godhead three in one in one dimensional terms. It's never going to work. That's what C.S. Lewis says anyway. Number three, why does it matter? 
And this is the best part. This is, this is what I came for. There's a lot of food on the table, but this is the best part to me. I'm already at 50 minutes. Anybody got to go? Okay, good. The essence of love is the Trinity. 1 John 4, 8 declares that God is love, right? And we espouse that. We love that verse. We love to picture God as love, right? It sounds good. It feels good. But did you know that that verse backs up the fact that God is the Trinity? Because what is love outside of relationship to another being? If God is simply just one being, one person, then he cannot say that he is love. What is, what is it that just he loves himself? What, what does that mean? No, love is created within the confines of a relationship. So the fact that God is love proves that there's a trinity going on, that there's a Godhead, that there are three people here sharing this love. Okay, John 3, 35 and John 14, 31, back that up. If, if God were not triune, there would be a time where God was not love. In fact, it would have been before the creation of the world. God couldn't say he's love until he created. And now that he's created something, he can love it. Does that make sense? The Trinity makes relationships of love what our life is to be about. The essence of salvation is Trinitarian. We read 1 Peter 1, 2, elected by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, by the obedience of the Son. You and I are found in Christ's righteousness because of a Trinitarian work. God, Jesus, Spirit, all involved. Ephesians 1, I want you to, we don't have time for that one right now. Go back, read it, study it. But the whole chapter reflects this phrase, by the Son, through the Spirit, unto the Father. Super cool. Got to look at it. Ephesians 1, the whole chapter. Our salvation, in essence, is Trinitarian. And then we share the fact that we're made in his image and we share in that Trinitarian life, it begins to make more sense because who are we? What are we? What are we as beings? We're body, mind, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. We're three in one. Not in a holy, God-like sense, but an image of it, a reflection of it, body, mind, and spirit, or body, soul, and spirit. We carry in and of ourselves that Trinitarian reflection. That's really cool. And then the best one is the essence of God's glory is the Trinity. The essence of God's glory is the Trinity. Let's go back really quick and end here. I know I'm going super long, but it's the Trinity. I mean, you got to cut me a little slack. It's the Trinity. I'm trying to do it in 45 minutes. Okay, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I want you to see if you can make some parallels in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, at the baptism of Jesus. In those, Jesus, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending, hovering over him like a dove, hovering over the waters and a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What did God say at the end of every day of creation? It is good, I am well pleased. It is good, I am well pleased. Third day, it is good, I am well pleased. So catch this, all right? This is the best part. The salvation of the world, this is little letter A, it mirrors the, the, the creation of the world. It's a project of our triune God. We've got the creation of the world and we've got the Trinitarian presence at the creation. And then when Jesus steps into time, matter, and space and he's baptized by the apostle John, we see again this Trinitarian presence at his baptism. We see the spirit hovering. We see God speaking just like in Genesis 1.1. And then what further solidifies this for me is that both the first Adam and Jesus, also known as the what? Second Adam, right? Are tempted by the devil immediately after. Right after creation, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and he only gives them one commandment. Don't eat of the what? Don't eat of the tree. Keep your hands off the tree. And Satan comes in, he tempts him. He says, if you eat of this tree, he just doesn't want you to be like God. Temptation right after creation. And then if you go back to where Jesus steps into time and space and he's baptized by John, signifying the beginning of his earthly ministry, he's immediately thrown into the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And the whole point is to get Jesus to deviate from God's plan, which was obey me about the tree. 
Both the first Adam and the second Adam, God was saying, obey me about the tree. Satan says, nah, don't do it. He ain't serious. And then he goes to Jesus again and he says, ah, no, don't do it. You can bow to me. You can have the whole worth. Just bow to me and I'll make, hey, turn this bread and turn this rocks into bread and, and eat. And again, trying to get Jesus to deviate from God's plan and God saying, obey me about the tree. So that, that, sh- that begins to show me something about the Trinity and my involvement within the Trinity. The essence of God's glory is the Trinity, okay? Now catch this. Obey me about the tree, right? That's signifying both that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and both the cross of Calvary, the ultimate tree that Jesus was saying, I've got to obey my father about the tree to die for the sins of all mankind. So the Godhead is therefore communal, relational, deferential. In other words, they are busy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three in one are busy orbiting around each other, dancing around. It's a divine dance where each one is lifting up and glorifying the other. We see this all over the Bible. Let's look at John 17, 21 through 24 in closing. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, will all, that they may all be as one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Is that it? Is there another one? Oh yeah. And the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be as one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you loved me. Do you know what's going on here with our triune God? So what's happening in the Trinity is that the three of them, catch this. So how many of you heard that God created man so that he could have a relationship with man? I've heard that I've even said it myself. How many have heard that God created man so that that man could give him glory? We are created for God's glory. How many have heard that? Yeah. If you think about it in a Trinitarian sense, though, if God is a communal and relational being, he already had all the joy within himself. This divine dance has the Holy Spirit glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father again. And they're all deferring to one another, glorifying one another. So they already have that joy, that the joy that's found when you serve something else that's higher and greater than you. You know it. At Christmas, you give gifts and you feel better than the person get the gift. Joy, God already knew that joy is found in, in giving, not receiving. So these three, this Trinitarian being giving to each other, deferring to each other, enrapturing, encircling one another as higher, he already had all the joy. He didn't create us for joy. He didn't create us to get joy. He already had it much more than we give him. And if you think about it, he already had relationship with the Son and the Spirit. He didn't create us to get relationship. He already had it way better than we give him. God didn't create us to to suck out his glory for himself. He already had glory, way better than we give him. That only leaves one option for why a Trinitarian communal relational God who, who, who existed within himself with everything he needed for himself, God was fully joyful, happy, complete, fulfilled, satisfied in who he was as a being that leaves the only reason to create, to go outside of the orbit and redeem something else is to give, not to get. The Trinity expresses the meaning of God's glory. And the meaning of God's glory is that God the Father and God the Spirit send the Son outside of the orbit of themselves to encircle Brennus and to bring her into this Trinitarian life. The fact that God the Father and God the Spirit send the Son into humanity to bring in Serena so that she can share in this joy. The Trinity shows this divine purpose for why God even created. Why did he even create us? Because he knew what he had was so good within himself. Fullness of joy, fullness of life, fullness of glory, fullness of relationship. He said, I can't keep this to myself. I've got to share it. I've got to create and then redeem that creation to bring them into this joy, to give them an opportunity to share in this joy, to share in this glory, to share in this fullness that I am, that my being exists about four, two. Crazy. We get pulled 
into the life of the Trinity through Jesus. He left the triune dance to encircle us, to bring us in, not to get glory, not to get relationship, not to get satisfaction. No, he created and then he redeemed that creation to give. Whoa, 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 Jim. What about all those passages, all those verses that say, I am a jealous God. Give me the glory that I am due. Give me glory. I am, I am the one and only God. We, we, we started out with some of those verses from Isaiah, that God is a jealous God, that he's one God and all glory belongs to him. So how do you reconcile that? If you know God's glory within the picture of the Trinity, it begins to make sense that the reason God exacts glory and he draws out glory and he demands that creation and his children worship him and glorify him is because he knows when you get an invitation to the dance and you come into that, fullness of joy is only found by giving him the glory that he's due. Fullness of relationship is only found when you're giving him the glory. So even in his phraseology of give me glory, he's being totally unselfish and giving because he knows when we give him the glory, we are become fully satisfied, fully that, that abundant, that joyful and abundant life he talks about. Okay, now I get it. It's a triune God that had everything within himself that he needed. He didn't need us for anything except the opportunity to write a redemption story and bring us into this triune dance. The Trinity is an invitation to the dance. That's what it is. That's who God is. A hundred percent totally giving of himself that we might share and who he fully is. Let's pray. Jesus, it doesn't really make sense, but it does, but it doesn't, but it does. And we admit that and we worship you because of that, that we can't confine it, we can't put terms on it, we can't put pictures on it. Try as we may to understand it and to quantify it and, and to somehow in our little one-dimensional world to put it in, in terms related to time, space, and matter. It'll never work because you are three-dimensional, if not more. And until the day we fully understand that, help us to worship you as we know you from your word. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. That your word lays forth a God that is one, yet three in one. We worship you because we don't understand it. We worship you because that validates our faith. We worship you because that defends our Bible. We worship you because you chose to create and to step into that creation simply to give us an opportunity to understand what joy is, what happiness, what fulfillment, what satisfaction even looks like and means. You already had that totally and completely within your Godhead. But you chose to draw us into the dance. With every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe you've never received that invitation to the dance. You've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You know that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are pleading on your behalf. Come to the dance. Receive the invitation. I have so much to give to you when you understand my glory, when you understand my creative, redemptive story throughout all humanity. Come to the dance. If that's you this morning, you can pray a simple prayer, mean it from your heart. It's not the words that save you. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's not walking an aisle that saves you. It's not raising a hand that saves you. It's a posture of the heart. It's simply believing. It's faith. It's trust saying, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've messed up against you. I've transgressed. And because of that sin, the Bible says I'm eternally separated in a place called hell. But I believe Jesus stepped into humanity. He, he confined himself so that he could bear my sin and my shame, die on a cross, shed his blood, and offer me that invitation to dance. I believe in him today. I don't fully understand him. 
I don't fully comprehend him, but I'm so glad that's not required to simply trust him with my life because he cared for me. He cared for me when no one would. He cared for me at my lowest point. If you prayed a prayer like that with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just slip up your hand? I want to pray for you. I want to rejoice with you. I want to present you up to the Father and rejoice that you are involved and you are part of this part of this dance. Anybody at all pray that prayer to receive Jesus? God, we trust that everyone here has received that invitation, that they are they're part of this. Help us to explore your word and, and get to know you more as best we can that your trinity does make a difference. It does matter. It matters in our salvation. It matters in our, in, in, in our apologetics. It matters in our practicality. It matters in every part of our life. Everything begins to make more sense when we understand a relational communal, communal Godhead three in one. We love you. Thank you for today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.